The thing is not how you are on your best days, how can you step up on your worst day? When everything is going terrible, when you're tired, when you're frustrated, when you're edgy, how do you treat other people? Fuck pain, fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. On this episode, we have a great chat with MMA fighter Justin Wren and his fascinating story that brought him from a cruelly bullied middle schooler to a two-time Texas state and eventual national championship wrestler. Even more exciting is how he used his success in MMA to focus on his charity projects to build fresh water wells for people in Africa, an effort that increases in scope every year. Here we go. And now, asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind for the Drunken Dows podcast begins now. Welcome back, everybody. Another fine episode of the Drunken Dows podcast, episode 225. Well, that's a great number. Two, I'd love the number 25. We have been in business since late 2012. That makes it just about, I think we're like a month shy of our 10-year anniversary of uh, podcasting. Or the beginning of our 11th. Not so bad. Yeah, the, 10 years completed, is, meaning. Who would have thought this much gold would arrive? Oh, yes. This is uh, the joy of it all. <laughs> cool. Let's get the show rolling by saying thank you to grasslandbeef.com. You guys are going grocery shopping. Do a quick check at Grassland Beef first. See if they have what you need. If uh, the prices scare you, you're thinking, oh, the quality may be great, but the price scare me. At least once or twice a month, they have a 15% discount store-wide. That helps considerably. So think about that. Uh, we really love their products, so check them out. Grasslandbeef.com. Also, thank you, of course, to Sure Design T-shirts that has been in our corner since day one. You guys know the drill by now. Um, while we are at it, we might as well say a thank you to Occult Herbs and Tonics that sent me some goodies herbs. Uh, I'll ask if we can get some more so I can share some mm. with the lovely man here next to me. Um, check them out. They do these mixes of herbs for grilling, for salads, for whatever. Really good stuff. Uh, if you guys shop on Amazon, please use our Amazon link. It's really appreciated. It's dwindling to next to nothing, but so you can be like one of the lonely customers who send a little bit our way by shopping on Amazon through our link. That helps a lot. I knew that Jeff Bezos stuff wouldn't last forever. Eh, they finally, yeah. finally run their course, huh? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> or you can decide to part with your hard-earned money because you're just a sweet person like that. Nice. And we are going to run through a donation list of the people who did just so. Let the pottering begin. Thank you to Luis Pesquera, Yanni Linnima, Jesse Rantakangas, Aaron Weisner, Austin Steelwell, Clayton Payne, Frederick Kahn, Jonathan Waterloo, Stephen McKee, Daniel Fishen, 
Keegan Walsh, Ryan Merklin, Stephen Noteriani, Lisa Robles, Nick Zuni, Kaistis Juska and John Vergara. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys are my heroes. If you want to join them and support, please paypal.me forward slash dbolelli. Again, that's paypal.me forward slash dbolelli. Kiva update? Yep. We are $70 from $195,000 in, in loans given out by our fellow listeners. Check that out. That's fantastic. So 200000 will happen. Yeah, we're going to make it. I like it. Crazy. Beautiful. Thank you to Desi House for the music that has been with us since very early on. And um, today we're going to have as a guest Justin Ren. If you guys have never heard of Justin, you seriously should. He has been on a bunch of podcasts. His story is amazing. You're going to get a glimpse of it from uh, what we discuss here today. I think the kind of human being he is shines through in everything he does, really, but in discussion as well. So, without further ado, let's bring him on. Here we go. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, here we roll. Man, I'm so happy to have Justin on because even before we were connected by Matt Staggs, I remember reading about you and going like, and it doesn't happen often that I see somebody online and I go like, oh, I really want to talk to this guy at some point. And in your case, I was like, man, I really like this guy. This is just strikes me in every which way as a good human being. So I wanted to. So when uh, Matt once asked, hey, do you know Justin Rand? Do you want to chat with him? I'm like, hell yeah. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, well, thank you so much for the opportunity. And thank you, Matt, because Matt, Matt is an absolute stud. I've, I've been a fan of his for, you know, I don't know, eight, nine, ten years really good dude but i've also been a fan of yours and so i'm really grateful you did my uh podcast as well overcome but you you're a guy that one i think you're my first or second favorite voice to hear in the world uh (laughs) but but the other guy is george st pierre so you guys are very similar um and he's been coming down and training with uh john danaher and gordon ryan and all them and so i'm really grateful for this opportunity oh i might start start the show off with saying um uh, I'm just going to read a text you sent me uh, okay. yesterday. Someone sent, and by the way, John Danaher, for those that don't know that are listening, he's like a legendary MMA and jujitsu coach, but this was really funny. Cause I got to tell him, I'm about to tell you, I got to tell John about this, but you said yesterday, someone sent me an email showing me how the first picture that shows up. If you Google John Danaher wife is a pic of him and my lady. And you did like a laughing face. I'm afraid I'll have to challenge him to a sword fight to the death at dawn because it makes it more dramatic and that just made me laugh and uh, you sent me the picture but i said uh, i'll tell him he has been challenged to a duel uh musashi style and then satoshi ishii's in town he can referee uh, satoshi ishii olympic gold medalist in judo and mma fighter that's fought like fedor Emelianenko and Krokop. and so uh you said musashi, musashi style means i'll show up late and hit him while shaking hands my favorite approach to fighting <laughs> yes, I don't, I don't want to have a fear fight with John Danaher. Are we kidding? It's like, there's no way in the world. <laughs> yeah, 
Well, what was funny was we were all at training and it was the last day before they went off to Vegas for mm -hmm. the world championships or ADCCs, yep. which is basically the Olympics of grappling for the listeners. Um, and uh, we're all sitting around the mats about to start training. I'm, I'm not yet because I was in a car accident, um, but I was, I was on the side and John's telling this funny story about interaction he had with a guy that's a really good wrestler um, and that came over to jiu-jitsu and then John's really excited to ask those guys always, what's your goals? Mm -hmm. And his goals was just, his only goal was to go back to his uh, wrestling powerhouse team in New York and to fuck them all up. <laughs> and, and so John's telling the story, everyone's laughing. And uh, then I just, we, we had been texting and I was like, I got, I got to read John this text and show him the picture. So I did that. And he's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that. And, and he goes, oh, I've been challenged to a duel. And then what did he say? He goes, uh, oh, Musashi style, like uh, the handshake, how you said that handshake and then hit him. He started laughing, really laughing and saying, that's good. That's good right there. Um, so it was just really funny. Satoshi was there, the Olympic gold medalist and all these legends. And we were just laughing, having a good time. And I'm glad uh, he was pleased, even though now I gave away my plan. So I'll have to yeah. come up uh, with the <laughs> Oh, yeah, sorry. Way. I gave away your game plan. Damn sorry. It. Yeah, but but that's my team. I had to. You know, John is is so, so obsessed, healthily. Uh, like, a, it's a beautiful obsession that he has. But Gordon was telling this story about John being moved into his apartment. And mm -hmm. he was like, Gordon, what do you think about Wi-Fi? And he's like, what do you mean? What do I think about Wi-Fi? And he's like, should I get it? And, <laughs> and he's like, yeah, John, if you ever want to stream Netflix, he's like, no, I don't, I don't want to do Netflix. He's like, but if you ever have a girl over and you, and she wants to watch a show, he's like, oh, okay, then yes, I need to get it. Um, but, but then I, he was asking me, he goes, he goes, wait, show me that picture again. He goes, do you mean to tell me people will Google John Danaher wife? And I'm like, yeah, I apparently, guess so. apparently. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I thought it was funny because it's like, who the hell even think of doing that? But somehow somebody did and eventually it arrived to me and I was like, oh, that's funny. And also I have to challenge him to add the wealth. To the yeah, so the him. one question I was going to ask you is, uh, I thought I knew Mushat, a lot of his story, the, the mm -hmm. great swordsman. I think he won 300 or over 400 sword right. fights. Some crazy um, but I didn't know that tactic. So is there a story behind that tactic of like shaking hands? No, Musashi was big on uh, his thing was once a duel is on, there are no rules left. Oh, it's, okay. uh, nice. So his thing, is, like there's one that they say that he shows up uh, pretending to be sick and they carrying him in a litter. And so his <laughs> opponent goes close. He's like, hey, are you actually okay to fight? And Musashi jumps up, hit him on the head with a stick, knocks him out and run away. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, Musashi was a little bit of that style of like, I'm not fighting fair. There's no such, th he was like the opposite of, whereas like the guy who wrote the Hagakure was all the, it's all about honor. Doesn't matter if you die trying, that's what a real samurai does. Musashi was more, uh, yeah, fuck that. How about I don't die and I make the other guy die instead <laughs> in any way possible? Doesn't honorable, not honorable. I don't know what you guys are talking about. So his style was a little more about get the job done. Get the and, job uh, done. If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Pretty much. So his <laughs> thing is he didn't literally handshake and hit somebody, but he might as well because a lot of his tactics were along those lines yeah well john was tracking with you right away he goes that is so good <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that he approves my plans for eliminating him that's that's always very good 
that uh, makes life easier. He's such a brilliant guy, man. I remember when uh, I had dinner with him once and he, you know, everybody knows him as this god of uh, the grappling world. But I remember he, um, we were, uh, me, my lady, him, were having dinner. And at one point, because uh, she was, you know, full on in her MMA career and he asked uh, her like, hey, uh, like, in MMA, there are so many things. What's your favorite thing? What's your number? And she started, ah, I think boxing is more my thing. And he was like, okay, which guy's in boxing? And she said, uh, Lomachenko and Mike Tyson. And he was like, okay, you know, very different styles, but yes. And he puts on a YouTube video of Mike Tyson. And he starts, he freeze frame it, like literally the, the bell went off and maybe one second went by. They are just, they took one step toward each other. And he goes like, what's Tyson doing here? He's like, uh, nothing. He's stepping toward, no, he's stepping slightly to the right. And this means that he's setting up. And he starts breaking down every little thing that Tyson would do. So it's not even his sport. It's boxing. Yeah. It's not his number one thing, even though, of course, he understands striking. Right. The way he understood it, the way he could break down any part of the tactic of the game was freaky. I was just like, holy shit. I thought I understood combat sports. I'm like, no, th this guy is on a level that I can't even imagine what it's like to be on that level. And that was picking any, she could have picked any branch of MMA at all, striking, grappling, wrestling, whatever, any person at all. And he had a master class ready about it. And I was like, okay, well, that's John Danaher for you, you know, that's on a whole other level of the game. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the one thing that was really impressive to me stepping into that gym, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to go back. I didn't want to go to new wave without being able to be in a place where I could be really consistent, always show mm -hmm. up. I don't want to be hit, the hit or miss guy. And that'd be my first impression. So Gordon Ryan had invited me once, then he invited me twice. Then he invited me a third time. And when, uh, then I finally went and because I had started to check out what the training times were all that. So I could build my schedule around it. And I walk in and the first practice I go to John and Gordon are both, I think in Boston or somewhere out there filming with BJJ fanatics. And so there's another guy teaching and I was just, I haven't been following the sport as much and grappling yet, but it's a competitor that's competing at ADCC's his name's Giancarlo. He's salt, salt of the earth. And I walk in and it, for my first class is a wrestling class. Well, I was a 10 times state champion in Texas and all American and national champion and lived at the Olympic training center. And I walk into a jujitsu gym or team legendary status, but they're teaching wrestling. Yeah. And then I'm watching them and I'm like, immediately, I'm like, where did this guy wrestle? Um, it, this is high, high, high level NCAA uh, level wrestling. Who is this kid? And, and how long has he been wrestling and where did he come from? So I do the whole class and I'm like, I like how he's setting this up. I like how he's doing this. And, and this is good stuff. Like this is not normal jujitsu wrestling. This is, this is next level. And so I asked Giancarlo afterwards and I go, where'd you learn your wrestling? And he goes, or where, where'd you wrestle? He goes, Oh, I, I didn't. And I'm like, what do you mean you didn't? And he, I go, where'd you learn your wrestling? He's like from John. Oh, and I was like, I was like, wait, what? Like yeah. uh, I've been to so many high class jujitsu academies and none of them have had high level wrestling like this, of is, this is like matches any 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 team in the country so it's just been really incredible and the last last uh thing is right before they went to adcc's there's a new move coming on the scene 
and I probably won't share it right now, but um, the way that John broke it down on how to defend it, mm -hmm. um, just he got every single competitor that is competing in the ADCCs, having the guy set it up perfectly, a training partner set it up, and then showed them all how to defend it for their weight class, for mm -hmm. their style. Of course. <laughs> whenever you're, whenever you're like, Gordon, this is how you defend yeah. it. Here's the three ways out. And, and this is how you get out and in a dominant position to finish the fight. Right. And then with a smaller guy, he's like, this is going to be different. These are the three ways you'd get out at his weight class, his style, because he's trying to set up this. And so just the strategy, I mean, he is, it's the art of war in practice. And yeah. I'm just like, wow. No, that guy, in fact, is... And I think that's what's fascinating, even about the story, aside for the cheating part, the stories about Musashi or the stories about... The thing that interests me is strategy. Mm. Because uh, the game, it's... Uh, and then the strategy can be applied <clears throat> to anything else, you know, is understanding what is that makes something effective. Right. Which ultimately, you know, if you understand effectiveness... It's the Musashi line, right? It's like he's talking about the way of the sword and he say, once you understand the way of the sword, you understand everything else. And he's like, no, what do you mean? You just understand how to swing a sharp thing. And he's like, well, some people are like that, but the principles behind it. Yeah. Strategy can be applied to any aspect of life if, you, if you're kind of thinking on your feet. And I love that because that's what effectiveness is ultimately, right? It's like, it's not about what just one field or another. Yeah, you need to be competent in that one field to be able to apply it. But the principles behind it are what separates somebody who's doing mainly just on instinct or because they learned something from somebody, from somebody else who can actually see the principles, have just enough knowledge to apply. I mean, think about it, like the fact that he could teach at yeah. that level wrestling, which it's never been his thing. He's not... He wasn't a wrestling champ. He wasn't a wrestling coach. He wasn't any of that. And the fact that he can teach wrestling at a level that, according to your opinion, which is as high as it gets when it comes to wrestling, was top-notch level, that's saying something about understanding principles. Yeah, and I would say it's even, just a little bit more on it, is it's even better because when I, when I walk in that to, to New Wave Jiu-Jitsu or Roka where we're training, I have the same feeling if not more as stepping into the olympic training center but these guys are from all around the globe mm -hmm. and then just to go beyond that i'm like talking to gordon and uh who's considered by many as the greatest of all times in nogi and he's like wait until you train mma with him i'm like why why is that he goes because he's a better teacher at mma than he is even at jiu-jitsu and i'm like better so then satoshi ishii's in town and you know Olympic gold medalist in judo. He's here till the middle of November. And we've started doing MMA and it's true. Like the way that he sets it up right. and the way he's thinking about strikes to take downs to ground and pound to a finish. And then even, even the wrestling side of it, I would say is better as a, as a complete art, the way he teaches it in jujitsu because it's not wrestling for a takedown in a, in a point mm -hmm. it's wrestling for a finish. Yep. And so it's yep. much yep. more effective in, in any practicality, you know, not, not just gaming the system with the points, but, but to really do it for a purpose. And Absolutely. why am I taking this guy down this way? Mm -hmm. So the setups are there, but you're not thinking about just points. You're thinking about always, always, always to get dominant position and to finish. And so it's really impressive. And then how you said the principles, I, right when you were saying that, I was like, wow, you know, 
I don't think there's another sport like martial arts. Martial arts changed my life. Martial arts saved, literally saved my life. But I think anyone that goes through the progress or process of going from a white belt to a black belt and then being able to apply that to life, I think you become a master of adversity, overcoming adversity um, to go from white to black or, you know, amateur MMA to pro MMA sure. or whatever level it is, getting on the mats, competing, taking it from theory in the practice room to actual competition and having to overcome the odds. And you've gone through so many times like perseverance that you can really relate that. I see, I see life now as a fight. Life's a fight. And how do we win this fight called life? And mm -hmm. I take a lot of the principles, or I mean, I basically take anything from martial arts and apply it to, to life. And so I think that's what's so great about the sport and philosophy. But I think, honestly, that's because that's you. You're smart. Uh, I think, like, the thing that puzzles me is when I see so many people who are really good at what they do, like, take the case of martial arts. They are brilliant fighters. They are brilliant athletes. Mm. And then they get off the mat and they are complete idiots about everything else. And I'm like, how can you... How do you not put them two and two together? You know, the same discipline, the same focus, your same ability to break things down, yeah. apply to communication, apply to interpersonal relationship, apply to whatever else. And, and I'm always puzzled when people seem to fall in love with the specific field that they excel at, with the, where the principles, they do apply them in that field, but somehow they forget about it the second they get out of the gym or, or any other field. You know, they can be brilliant in that one thing, And where to me, it always seemed to be kind of defeating the purpose. If you're not, uh, if you're not like whatever field you are into, doesn't matter what it is. You can be a rocket science. It can be anything. But like, if you only apply to that one thing, it's like, great, clap, clap, clap. You became the greatest, whatever in the world at that one thing. But what about the rest of life? Because yeah. to me, any field there is shouldn't be, that is something that is a tool to serve the rest of your life, not the other way around, not that you dedicate your life to this one thing and there's nothing else outside of it. And I'm fascinated by exactly the fact that for you is what I'm talking about, is this idea of, uh, you know, you have clearly been a lifelong athlete, you have been, you know, super high-level wrestling, pro-MMA, all the really high-level game, And at the same time, you're not just thinking about the game itself. You're thinking, this is great and all, but I want to get something for the rest of my life. Like, for example, when you are talking about the role that martial arts played in, uh, you said, you know, martial arts saved my life. Tell me a little bit, like, how did you get into it? What has been the, in which way did it have such a profound effect on you? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll get right into that in a moment. You, 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 sure. I want to at least acknowledge sure. this where I think you do such a great job at that as well, you know, from philosophy and martial arts to then podcasting, like you're just broadening your spectrum of all the things you can be mm -hmm. great at and much more than that. I I've just thought of, you know, our buddy Joe and mm -hmm. he springboarded from being a Taekwondo champion to then kickboxing to then whenever he went to jujitsu, his mind was blown because he thought he knew how to fight. Um, and then to commentating, to archery, to podcasting, like, like you can apply these principles to all areas of life. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to do it or start thinking it that way, because, you know, my life, martial arts didn't fulfill, it did save my life, 
But then once I turned to a pro MMA fighter, it didn't fulfill my life. It wasn't the only thing. Um, and so many guys do put all their eggs in that one basket yep. and then they feel empty. I remember getting my hand raised and thinking, is this it? Is this, is this all? <laughs> right. I, exactly. I think after my first 13 fights or uh, I, I, I don't think there's a picture of me smiling after right. victories, you know, and, and I want them all, almost all of them. And I, I just knew there was so much more and looking around at some of my, my heroes that I had posters on my wall mm -hmm. as a kid, 13, 14, 15 years old, they're the posters. Now I'm in training camp with them, still helping them defend a world title or, or go for it again. And then I saw a lot of, um, either broken relationships or, them not being fulfilled and so going to partying drinking drugging mm -hmm. or them having nothing at the end of their career sure and so their life was fighting but i've also been able to see super bowl champs and world series champs and stuff like that and and i just was like wow this isn't this isn't it just being the best in the world at something there's got to be more and yep. so i took a step back from it um for for quite a time to start fight for the forgotten but i'll go back to the question how did it initially change and save my life? I grew up getting very, <clears throat> extremely heavily bullied. And I know a lot of people do. Um, just in statistics today in the US, one in three children will be bullied at school this year. 160 or 180,000, it's one of those numbers. 160,000 kids skip school every day because of, uh, of bullying. Jesus. So at the end of one month, that's more than 3 million lost school days. Yeah. where they're not getting educated, where they're not getting building times with friends um, and not, not socializing. And I was one of those kids. I would play sick when, when I wasn't because I didn't want to go back to school and one, either sit by myself at the lunch table or get pelted in the back of the head with chocolate milk spit wads or, or, or food or fist uh, while kids walked by. But there was these two moments in my life that, that probably began the biggest battles of my life, which was against depression, suicidal ideation, and then, and then which turned into addiction later. I'll, I'll share just one of them, but I got invited to my middle school crush's birthday party mm -hmm. and everybody was so excited uh, to go to her party. And I got an invitation, like a, like a hand mm -hmm. handed invitation to me. I, I opened it up and it was a, a costume contest. The winner was gonna get a prize. Her dad worked at Dr. Pepper. That's a big thing in Texas. And uh, like it's in the culture, for some reason people wear the shirts and they they decorate their uh, like a man cave with Dr. Pepper and instead of Coors Light, it's Dr. Pepper or Budweiser, it's Dr. Pepper. And it was going to be a Dr. Pepper gumball machine or Dr. Pepper gumball flavored gumballs. I wanted to win that. I wanted, but more than that, I wanted to win her attention mm -hmm. or affection. Sure. So I, people were talking about what characters are going to go as like. Uh, I should, probably should have gone as Thor since I look like a Viking, but um, they were talking about X-Men and Superman or Batman. And I knew she loved Transformers and that her favorite was Optimus Prime. And so it was around the Super Bowl time and I went to a, a grocery store and they had like a football player down in the three-point stance and another one uh, in the Heisman that were made out of these Dr. Pepper boxes. Mm -hmm. And they had a cowboy with a cowboy hat of Dr. Pepper and a guitar. And that gave me the idea. I'm going to transform into Dr. Optimus Pepper. So I, I put it head to toe um, uh, on me. I had a 24 pack on my head or whatever, 12 packs on my arm. And my mom helped me. I was 
uh, a country kid in, in outside Fort Worth, Texas with some duct tape. We can do some damage. And so, uh, so head to toe, I had a sword, I had a shield, went to the party. Mimi opened the door, that's her grandmother, and walked into the living room. And there was a, the rumors at school were true. There was the Dr. Pepper vintage machine there. You don't pay, you just push a button. Yeah. So I have a Dr. Pepper in my hand. I walk to the backyard and her grandma goes, she's going to love this. And I get to the backyard, open the door and I'm blasted with, uh, with, with several flashes of light and it's uh, cameras and uh, my eyes adjust, but I'm also hearing the sound of laughter. And um, my middle school crush crushed me when she said, I can't believe you thought you were good enough to come to my party. And I, I then I then realized nobody's dressed up. It's only me. Um, there was all a show like it was premeditated or I was I, really I was confused. Right. But then next to her, a guy named Tyler said, uh, you're worthless. And then the notorious bully I had from third to eighth grade, who was always kind of the ringleader, he shared my name. His name was Justin. And he said, you should just kill yourself. And Jesus. so it was like, boom, 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 confused, hurt. And as a, a young mind, you believe the things people say about you. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in that moment, I remember thinking like, I'm worthless. I'm not good enough. Maybe I should just kill myself. And I mm -hmm. ran up. That was the it was actually the second time I ran away. Um, but I ran away from that party. And I ended up behind a Dairy Queen again in the country in Texas, um, but I hid behind a dumpster. I remember I, this is where through therapy and, and actually another podcast I did. Um, the the host asked me. He goes, he goes, is that why you don't you don't like having sticky hands? And I was like, wow. And then I went to therapy and I talked about it. And uh, but I remember I I threw all that stuff away inside a dumpster. I have the duct tape, the sticky stuff on my shirt, my legs, my hands. But also when I put in the dumpster, there's like, I don't know, like chili cheese dogs or oh, burgers course. and ketchup oh, and ice cream that's yeah. been thrown away. And so I just hugged my knees for quite a while and until dark, until they closed. Um, my mom couldn't find me. They bring me inside, say, oh, honey, what's going on? Come inside, call your mom. Uh, I called my mom. It's before cell phones. So she has to go home, hear the voicemail, come back pick me up from Dairy Queen with one or two employees that stayed after with me. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a, it was a brutal moment in my life, but about a month later I found martial arts mm -hmm. and I went to a flea market in Arlington, Texas. I was going to buy a, a pellet gun because uh, we had rats in our barn. I stumbled upon a used VHS tape store that also sold flying squirrels and parrots and lizards and snakes <laughs> what is this place yeah it's my way to go get go get a, a a pellet gun and in there i saw the ufc for the first time never mm -hmm. heard about it and they had two through 10 or two through 11 they're yep. listening ufc one yep. i spent all my allowance on um on the used vhs tapes mm -hmm. and i took them home hit them under my bed uh, when my dad found them, but I started watching and I fell in love with it. But when my dad found the stack of VHS tapes, he thought I was like, uh, stashing porn. Of course. <laughs> and instead of was fighting and he was mad telling my mom, he's going to try to do this someday. And I, I'd never been in a fight. And, right. uh, she's like, no, he's not. But I, in my mind, I was like, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm going to do this. When I picked up the VHS tapes, I thought these guys don't get bullied. Mm -hmm. Of course. And then I fell in love with the chess match. 
this this is going to change my life sorry we got a crazy annoying bird let me see if i can today we're sponsored by short form Shoreform offers a service where you can get summaries and analysis of uh, many of the books you want to check out, but maybe you haven't had time to do so. The goal of this is twofold. On one hand, it helps you remember key lessons from books you have read, but it has been too long and you forgot half of it. And the other one is that it helps you discover new books that you may want to check out, but you're not sure about whether it's the time investment and energy investment beforehand. So this gives you a sneak peek on what you can expect. The quality of the summaries is, uh, this is not your cousin Joe barely knows how to read those telling you what he read last week. There are professional authors, PhDs. These are some of the folks writing these summaries and analysis. Shortform publishes new book guides and articles every week, and the subscribers get to vote on what books are going to be covered next. Shortform summaries are about non-fiction, because of course fiction you want to read it for the style, for the pleasure, for everything else associated with it. With non-fiction, sometimes it really boils down to ideas and concepts that have uh, actionable items there. For example, if you read a book about health, you may read it for fun, but you're also reading it because you want to learn some things that you can apply to your life. Same goes for self-improvement or finance or some of this genre. So while reading the full book, obviously there's no substitute for that. Having the summary and analysis can help you retain some of these ideas and uh, get a feel for if something that you do want to read the book cover to cover. Case in point, I just checked out a short-form summary of Guns, Germs, and Steel, which is a fantastic book. I read it a couple of times. Very revolutionary approach to history. But honestly, I read it the last time was probably 10 years ago. I don't remember 90% of it. So to have something where I can go back and quickly I can get all the key points... Uh, the author of the summary did a phenomenal job because they had uh, some of the counterpoints that have been since made by critics of the book and how Jared Diamond, the author, addressed them. So you really get, in a very short time, a sense of what the book is about, what are the key ideas, what are the what's the debate surrounding the book. That's as good as it gets. Gets you through a lot of dinner parties that way. So in light of that, to get a five days of unlimited access and an additional 20% discount on the annual subscription, join Shortform through our link shortform.com forward slash drunken. Again, that's shortform.com forward slash drunken. You get a five-day free trial and a 20% annual discount. Only pissing it off. <laughs> oh, here comes the partner. It just adds to the ambience. Sorry about that. No, Normally, good. blue jays are not such assholes, but. <laughs> there it goes. God, I hate you, bird. That's a lot. It's a trap. The one in the tree is waiting for you. Uh-oh.
he's brandishing his flip flop now. This is getting <laughs> it's next level. Don't lose your flip flop. Where are y'all right now? We're in Ojai, California, fifty miles north of LA. Looks beautiful there. It's been hot as shit here, so oh, this yeah? is like the first cool day after about a week of it. How hot did it get when it peaked out here? Uh, one hundred eight. Yeah, we. I mean, we made it to ninety two. I live in Oxnard. It's about twenty miles, but it's next to the ocean. Yeah, and it was even hot there. The other day, I got in my car, and I know it's probably the inside temperature, but it was a uh, hundred and thirteen. Jesus. Wow. I was like, holy smokes. That's fucking up. It'll, it'll be fun when those are the cool days. Yeah. <laughs> Just wait. Yeah, sorry for the interruption. No, you were saying no, the one thing that's like key though, when you said the you see UFC fighters and your thought was these guys don't get bullied. Yeah. Which of course given where you are at in life, that meant everything. Yeah, it meant everything. It it became my everything. Yeah. It became my identity that, um, you know, I, I, I tried to start boxing. My parents said no. Um, mm -hmm. I tried to find other martial arts and they were basically too far away. We lived really in the country. We had horses, yeah. like stuff like yeah. that. So I filled my time with some other sports, but I just knew I needed to wrestle. Mm -hmm. My parents, after that, after that moment, because I couldn't hide it anymore that I was being bullied, um, they decided to switch me school, like get me out of that school. Yeah. And when they transferred me, there was a, a, a girl in middle school and a kid in elementary school, a boy in elementary school that their dad was a wrestling coach. And he introduced me to the sport of wrestling and I lost every match. I was the only wrestler in my entire school in high school. Mm -hmm. um, and I lost every match. I won for the first year at about a year and a half. I won one match by one point. And I, I sincerely think it's because we're heavyweights and there was a, there's sweat on the mats and I think he slipped. <laughs> um, and because I didn't know how I won. Sure. Um, I mean, I was on top of him, but then he got yeah. up and away. So it was two for the takedown and then one for him escaping and, and I won by a point. Right. And, uh, so, but then my parents saw my dad, my dad was pretty harsh growing up and uh, love him but he was the dad that would live vicariously through you in any sport. Mm -hmm. So he'd get thrown out of football games, baseball games, basketball games, because he's arguing with the coaches, the yeah. other coaches, the referees, um, the umpires. And one of the things I loved about wrestling was he didn't know anything about it. <laughs> so I would get off the mats and he'd be like, you're throwing your football career away to just lose. And because uh, I was a freshman that played both sides, offense and yeah. defense on, on varsity and colleges were looking at me. I was an all state lineman my sophomore year and I quit football my, my junior year, mm -hmm. played two games, had great games. And then I said, I'm going to focus on wrestling. And it didn't make any sense to anybody. No, of course. But to me, it did. And because I knew my goal was, mm -hmm. was to be a, a, a national champion in that. And then you go into MMA. And an interesting story is well, I, I went to the state championship. I basically got um, kind of a petition in. Uh, there was a guy that was injured, couldn't compete. It was a 16-man tournament. So that coach that was at that school, he uh, was the state director of wrestling. So he got me in because they could fill the match or they could just give a bye. Yeah. So he got me in, and, but I had to go against the number one guy in state first. That was the last seed. He was the first seed. And he said, just go out there and try. You've been... Oh. And I think from bullying, I went out on the mats and I would hesitate. Mm 
mm-hmm. because I was doubting myself. Sure. I, I would telegraph my moves two, three, four times before I try them. So they knew what was coming and they could of reverse course. it. Yeah. Um, he said, just go out there and go. You have nothing to lose. Just go out there, try to throw this guy to his back, pin him and, and, and shock everyone in the state. So I did that. I threw him on his back and I pinned the, the, the first guy in state. And, and then I won the state championship. And yeah, it, which was pretty crazy. And, and the guy that I beat uh, had two Olympic gold medalists in his corner, Kenny Monday and Kendall Cross. Jesus. And so from that moment, he was a senior graduating. Um, and from that moment, those coaches got a real interest in me. It was private school. So uh, you, can, you can transfer and all that stuff. But my parents made a real sacrifice, sent me 67 miles from, from door to door. And I have to drive that every day. Uh, get go leave before sun up uh, get back after sundown and I have to drive through downtown Fort Worth downtown Arlington downtown Dallas to get to school yeah so sometimes I'm on the road three hours uh, yeah. just to get there or back yeah. and my parents made that sacrifice because they saw okay he's actually like pursuing something he has a goal I told him it was I just knew it it was going to change my life and my mom still says it was the best decision they've ever made for me um but yeah, it was, it was, it did. I changed into that. Martial arts was my, my outlet. It became mm-hmm. my purpose, but yeah. I think it should have maybe just been my passion. Um, because what I've learned through fighting is for, for most of my career, I was fighting against people when really I was supposed to be fighting for people mm-hmm. and, or at least pairing those together. And that's what I get to do now. And making a comeback is like, I get to fight in my sport, use it as a platform to get the microphone and tell people about a much bigger, more important fight. And that's precisely what I love, you know, because it's like there's uh, every other fighter in the world. You look at them and you're like, he punches well. He great at movement or, oh, what a good wrestler. The end, you know, that's where the whole thing ends. And then you hear them talk and you're like, you know, I liked it a lot better before you started speaking. <laughs> in your case, on the other hand, there's exactly what you said, this feeling that martial art is a means to, has been a great tool, but ultimately for you now, it's a means to an end because you have uh, some other things that you care about, other things that are more important than what gets done on the mat, yeah. other things that ultimately are more important than anything else when it comes to any one field. They are life and they can make life, like they can make a difference in people's existence. Yeah. In your case, what are some of the things that you care about so much? Well, one story is I've, I, I grew up with a speech therapist from kindergarten mm-hmm. to sixth grade and heavily from kindergarten to second grade and then kind of more maintenance or, or some more tools till sixth grade. But public speaking has been my number one fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can get in front of tens of thousands of people and fight uh, live and millions on TV. Yeah. But speaking in front of a small group is, is, was hard for me. I still, my hands will shake, my armpits uh, yeah, will flat. And it took me 10 years to start my own podcast with, with other you know, guys telling me I should. I'll tell you something. Sorry, I'll interrupt you just to tell you yeah. something funny. Um, my lady, or rather John Danaher's wife, uh, <laughs> she I've seen her walk into cage fights with a smile and all relaxed. And I kid you not, every time she has to do an interview with anybody where the interviewer, it's one-on-one via Zoom. And then I go, like, when she's done, she gets up, I give her a hug, and she's, like, sweating. She literally is, like, <laughs> literally... <laughs> Oh, that was so intense. <laughs> like you're just talking to a human being. That was intense, but you can go into a cage and fight. And it's 
and apparently yes that is the answer yeah that's that's my that's just like her that's that's our domain that's yeah. my world where I'm, i'm most comfortable but from from speaking now i get to give a voice to these people who when i met them said we don't have a voice can you help us find have one mm-hmm. and um and then i mean it's been wild because i i've been able to speak in over 100 uh prisons from Folsom to San Quentin to death row to juvenile detention um you know 100 plus schools to speak about bullying prevention even it'll help kids like a young man in Oklahoma that was 20 minutes from me named Raiden who when i met him you know he was born with autism born deaf in his right ear gained 100 something pounds because of uh childhood diabetes and all the medications they had him on and he was beat up at school he was at the urinal literally using the restroom six or eight kids film it and while one kid's beating him in the back of the head mm-hmm. then at the bus stop he gets jumped the very next day and was given a concussion because three people jumped him and they filmed it and posted it all over social media and that they reached out to me a day later or day after and i was with him that night with rafael lovato jr and uh what mma world champion and jiu-jitsu world champion and in that moment i was just thinking man i get to be Like this is an opportunity to be the guy I needed when I was 12 years old. And fast forward two years later, he's training jujitsu with Rafael Lovato Jr. and his whole mm-hmm. team. And his whole demeanor's changed. When I met him, you know, he had wrote, I want to kill myself in his in his forearm with a Sharpie. He still had that mark in his arm when I met him. And uh, it was faded, but he didn't want hugs, right? Like he, it, that's partially because of him being on the spectrum, but uh also he's been abused or or, mm-hmm. or mistreated and um you know now when i see him he like runs up to me and gives me the biggest hug ever and his life has changed because of martial arts just like martial arts changed my life mm-hmm. um it's changed his and yeah so i would say that now um fight for the forgotten is my 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 most important uh cause and passion uh through fate or through a spirit quest or whatever you want to call it uh vision quest i i i ended up in the congo never had any plans to go to africa but ended up there uh maybe for a safari i don't know but, uh, i just didn't think i was going to be uh, in the philanthropy or humanitarian or nonprofit world at all met these amazing people who are such incredible human beings um a hunter gatherer tribe the pygmy people their average height's only four foot six. that's why they call me um mabutimangbo and that means the big pygmy um and uh, my first name they gave me was Afeosa, <laughs> uh, which is uh Afeosa means the man who loves us which that one i really cherish or treasure and um it's been incredible when i first got there it was really really hard i was thinking this problem's way too big and i'm way too small what what in the hell am i going to do about it mm-hmm. i'm not trained on anything i'm a fighter you know uh but when i came back home it was like whoa i'm giving my dog clean water I'm using the restroom in clean water. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can just go turn on five or six faucets in my house and get clean water. And I just got back from burying a young boy named Andy Bo. He was one and a half years old. Um and it wasn't just dirty water. He did die of waterborne disease, but it was also discrimination. He was like turned away at the hospital. His mom was told you're too dirty to come in here. Um and the second time they said we won't waste our medicine on a pygmy animal. Um and so it was his slave master told me it was cheaper to bury him than to keep him alive and I had to refute that saying that well I just spent $6 on a shovel 
that I buried them with and $30 on the casket we buried them in. It, it, was, it was just heavy. It was really, really heavy. Uh, culture shock obviously broke my heart, but changed the trajectory of my life where I thought I was just gonna take away a year from fighting. It ended up being five years. Um, and I ended up living there in the Congo for a full year. Uh, and I've been going back and forth the last 10 years, built up more than two years there. And it's uh, first goal was we're going to drill two water wells and we're going to get 30 acres of land. Now it's over 3000 acres of land <laughs> and it's uh, more than 80 water wells. It's uh, at least 30,000 people serve. But I think if we looked at the numbers, it's probably more than 45 or 50,000. We've already built 32 homes, you know, going from twig and leaf huts, uh, which I lived in. My hut was four and a half, five feet tall. So I couldn't stand in it. The door was maybe tops three feet tall. I had to get on my like hands and knees to get in, then pull a palm leaf or a banana leaf uh, over the door or the doorway to be the door. And the dirt was my bed and the fire was my blanket or my, my space heater. Yep. Uh, and it's been um, an incredible journey. That was one of the highlights of my life. Um, and Amy actually asked me, she goes, she goes, what's, what's the favorite day, your favorite day on earth? And I was like, what a, what a, what an interesting question. Yeah. And I told her, you know, celebrating your birthday this last weekend was incredible. You know, all the 28 people mm -hmm. loving on you, the, the gift I asked them to give them was speak something into your life that you, that you love about her. Mm -hmm. And it was, we thought it was going to be 20 minutes. It was two hours. It was like, that was really special. She was, she was, I want you to think bigger, deeper than that. And I instantly went to Africa and uh, living a life of purpose, which I think at the heart of every true martial artist, um, that it's not just about fighting, but it's about the martial art and, and doing mm -hmm. something beautiful on the mats uh, and taking that to doing something beautiful into life, um, I think is living a life of service. Because once you become a black belt, and, and even before that, you start teaching what you've been learning, you start giving mm -hmm. back to everyone, you start making your community better. There was this one night, uh, in Bobofi, they also called it Tundu, which was, we were figuring out the name of the village mm -hmm. and, uh, Tundu meant the hole in the forest. It was like 200 foot tall trees, or at least over hundred foot tall trees. You could see the moon pass over and I'd have to wait for a satellite to pass over to get my satellite phone to actually make a call. And we hit so many challenges drilling this well. It took us 28 or 29 days to finish one well and it's manual drilling. So we didn't have a drilling rig because, uh, there was no road to drive a, a truck plus big trucks that are half a million dollars bring a lot of problems with rubble. Yeah. So we were wrestling with the earth. We were thinking about quitting, but they've never had clean water. And the chief said, my grandson will be able to say, this was my grandfather's land. We've never had land ownership. And I remember that this was my grandfather's land that we would come on and we would hunt on. And now mm -hmm. we get to call this home. And we're going to have clean water. So on this celebration day, when we had it, um, I remember just thinking, I've been to the World Series, the NBA Finals, the Super Bowl, the Manny Pacquiao fights, the UFC 100, 200. I've been to all these events. And this crowd, this small group, this, this small village of 100 people, you know, celebrating water, drowned out the sound of you know, a Super Bowl championship victory. It just had a different depth. Maybe the, mm -hmm. the, the sound wasn't as loud. Of course. But the, the meaning 
yeah. it. Like it was victory over death. Yeah. It, yeah. it was yeah. the sound of, if we think about Goliath, like uh, a giant hitting the dirt. This was a, uh, the splash of water. That sound was like E. coli hitting the dirt and cholera hitting the dirt and these intestinal bacterias and amoebas and waterborne disease hitting the dirt. And it was victory over those things. And so we started with a celebration where we had brought a pig um, and we were gonna uh, you know, slaughter that, but they had gotten a, a, a diker in the forest, like a wild game. Yeah. So now we're eating especially good and, and rice and beans and we have bananas and plantains that they've been growing on their own field. Mm -hmm. And the celebration started towards sunset, but we feasted, we, we danced, we sang, and we didn't go into our huts until the sun was coming up. Mm -hmm. And I went to sleep on the dirt, sweaty, with, in a hot, humid rainforest, which is normally really hard to sleep like that. And I remember, I remember falling asleep with my cheeks hurting from smiling <laughs> so much. Yeah. And I was just like, yeah, that, that was the best day ever. That's as good as it gets. I can see why. I love that. And that's funny, actually. You know, earlier when we started with the whole Musashi story, I was actually thinking related to what you just said right now, because uh, I'm working on a Musashi series for History on Fire. And, you know, everybody worship Musashi, his greatest swordman, this and that. And then I kind of started asking people why, because I was looking at his life and the deeper I dug, the less I was impressed in the sense, and I, it's a more complicated conversation because I'm sure it's there are sides to him that are very interesting, but there was one aspect of it that it seemed like despite all the philosophy and the theory, which sounded great, the reality is that this was a guy who became an amazing sword fighter, the end. Or he was also a great artist and other things, but at the end in the sense that there was kind of no love in his life. You know, there was no greater purpose. There was no, there was his journey as a personal journey that is where it begins, that's where it ends. Which, don't get me wrong, you know, if you can make yourself happy in any way you can, I'm all for it. But to me, what you just said is like, what about a bigger reach? What about having an impact on the world around you, on other people that you meet, on, uh, you know, kids, on loved ones, on friends, on people that you're present, you're having gone through a mountain of hardship has made you strong enough to help somebody dealing with their own hardship because you have been there you know what it means and you can bring a certain presence to it that somebody who hasn't been there may have good intention but they don't have the what's necessary to be there present and i think that's what i was finding lacking in the musashi story and that's what to me is the most important aspect of the whole warriorship business is like what are we doing it for otherwise you know what's the big deal in becoming a great fighter unless you are fighting for something, you know? Knowing how to fight, that's great. But knowing how to fight for something, that's what actually means, uh, that's where meaning is attached to it. That's when it becomes interesting. Otherwise, it becomes like an end in itself, which I have no interest in. And so when you say these things, it's like every word rings perfect, right? I'm hearing it and I'm like, oh, this is exactly what I've been, you know, you put it so eloquently and so perfectly, which is, by the way, it's funny that you say about how you're, you know, oh, a little guy worried with your verbal communication because everything was spot on in such a beautiful, poetic way, and yet it delivers. And I'm like, 
that's it. That's life right there. That's what it's all about to me. Otherwise, why are we bothering? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I, I really appreciate it. And you just made me think, I, I think with martial arts and, and, and thinking about great fighters, you know, sometimes the only thing that separates them is, is, and I think John Danaher said this, but it's only two or three things that they do better than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, it's not this huge gap, but, um, and they're really proficient at defense in, in most areas. Uh, but I started thinking about it and w- what sets people apart whenever they're kind of equally skilled or e- equally matched, uh, maybe similar styles mm-hmm. or different styles, but equally matched. And I just started thinking in the stories you always love, like the Kurt Warner story or, or, or the Olympian that he was the dark horse and then ended up winning. And mm-hmm. I, I really think a thing that, that I love, I'm going back into MMA and in talks with not just Bellator, but UFC and PFL and, and seeing where, where I'm going to call home. And I really think what I'm trying to do is stack my reasons because it's, it's usually the person with the most reasons usually wins. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to stack those reasons and think about that Olympic champion that says, well, I, I came out of nowhere and won this, but I knew I was going to, because I did in honor of my mother who just died of cancer or, or is dying of cancer. Mm -hmm. I wanted her to see this or, or for the people from where I grew up in the inner city or were in poverty to show them they can make it out. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I love about coming back to fighting is thinking no one, I, I get that, that moment of truth Mm -hmm. and and you talk about it. And, and when that cage door shuts and, and, and locks, I think a lot of amateurs or people, when they first get to the big show, that that cage door locks it's that moment of truth like oh shit i'm locked in here um but i've always had the mentality but especially now is like i'm not locked in here with you you're locked in here with me right Right. (laughs) looking into their eyes i I know they don't have the same reasons i do right right um and and so not saying i'm better at all but I, i have this 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 purpose or passion um that when I went, I get to go drill some more wells or, mm-hmm. or, or our new project, which is really the motivator for the comeback. Yes, I have unfinished business, but not only that, it's I get to use it as a megaphone to say, hey, we are, we are embarking on our biggest, most meaningful project ever in Uganda. Mm-hmm. And we are drilling or we're creating, uh, building a, a water reservoir, mm-hmm. but, but we have a $1.5 million donation in medical supplies to outfit a hospital in the region, mm-hmm. uh, not, not just a hospital that, that already exists. We're going to build one because there's not one within two hours yeah. Yeah. Um, and a school where they get education for the first time. We're going to knock out waterborne disease and malaria. We're going to create a space for a maternity ward, a pediatrics unit, so they can, they can have safe births and, and, and labor because Uganda has one of, if not the worst child mortality rate in the world for, for during labor or mm-hmm. mothers dying in labor. And it's like, we've, we've got to do this. It's too important. We're going to build it in honor of Andy Bo, the, the first young boy mm-hmm. that we, and, and we won't put that on the walls or out there, but in spirit, like it's in honor of him and, yep, and, yep. and the other five children that have attended their funerals or helped dig their graves. When I say that, it's not about me. Like, this is what they face on a daily basis. Of course. And, um, and it's what they want. It's what they've asked for. Uh, and we're going to create a little, community hub they're going to be beekeeping for honey mm-hmm. they're going to raise queen bees and sell it to other 
other communities we're going to be raising goats and chickens they're going to have like an economy there locally mm -hmm. instead of having to travel the two or three hours to a market once a month to then survive off that for the rest of the month it's like we're going to bring it to them every single week or they could do it every single day if they want right um and so that that's my driving force and i'm excited that is a hell of a powerful driving force it's going to be fascinating to see how quickly their culture is shifting though i mean if they were literally hunter gatherers 10 years ago they must have been some of the last on the planet and definitely it had to be a struggle for sure is it difficult for them to make these switches over or are they that's a good question addressing reality and realize that you know here comes civilization which uh has been kind of a yoke to all of us since it arrived but clearly they're not gonna be able to survive in their old ways anymore and water is so important yeah. and along with the embarrassment of us we can't even supply Mississippi and Flint doesn't have water. Yeah. Fixed I mean, oh, man. I saw the Mississippi I was born, I was born in Greenville, Mississippi, and I have family in Jackson, Mississippi right now. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, wow, I can't believe this is happening here. But that's a, that's a really deep and intricate, intricate question because uh, there's so many layers to it. Sure. In, in Congo, we were able to buy back virgin rainforest wow. for them to live in and, and preserve their culture. Right. Um, but in Uganda, they were kicked out of the Similiki National Forest and in, 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 uh, uh, Buindi and, and they were evicted saying that they were protecting uh, wildlife, they were protecting the rainforest, preserving the rainforest. But the real thing is that the pygmy people are the protectors of the forest, they're the people of the forest. Like why, why kick them out of their ancestral home? Mm -hmm. But because they can't live there and they, they won't budge on that right now, one day we hope to be able to buy back land in the forest in Uganda. But until that day on their new land that we've got them, we are, we're, we're working with the university that is replanting the forest on their new land. Mm -hmm. um, so we've already replanted over 11,000 trees. Um, and they also will be able to farm and go in there. They're only allowed back into their ancestral home to collect basically wild or important medicinal uh, herbs and um, sometimes collect firewood, uh, but that's not sustainable. So it's, um, it's an interesting question, but they have been asking for this. In fact, uh, y'all are the first people I've, I've ever told this publicly, uh, but about a week ago, we shifted them onto the new land with their new homes uh, where they have beds for the first time wow. uh, and, and kitchens and living rooms and, and two or three bedroom homes. Uh, we're, we're working on getting them with solar, but they've never had power. When they were kicked out, 300 and something people kicked out of the Similiki National Forest in this part of Uganda, they were forced to live on one acre of land. Can you imagine that? One acre of land that, that they have designated for them. <laughs> it was basically a refugee camp yeah. and it was behind a slum and that slum would throw out their basically raw sewage and they would have to pick up whether it's their toys or, or their meals that they're cooking on a fire and move it whenever someone would throw their sewage out because it was on a slant in a hill. And so the kids are playing in that, they're passing around disease to one another. About half of their people group that was kicked out of the national forest died in the last 10 years wow. because they would dwindle down to 156, I believe. I was walking on that land with them. There was all these mounds on that one acre. And I was like, what are these mounds to the chief and the king um, in Zito? He goes, oh, Efe, 
these these are dead. We don't have anywhere uh, to to have a burial ground for them. Like this is this is it. This is all. Um, and so they were living and cooking and playing on top of their dead, um, which is just defeating. Yeah. Um, and so a, a few days ago, um, they went on that land and they had huts, but uh, on that one acre, and they they just destroyed um, their homes as a symbol that we are not going back to that. Mm -hmm. We are going to our new land. We're making a new home. This is our new future. And when we started this project, I remember sitting there with Zito and in the dirt with a stick, he was drawing their needs. And he was saying, <laughs> we would like homes and, and water uh, and, and farms. And, uh, and, and one day we would like to be able to go to a hospital that doesn't deny us treatment. Even, even last time I was there, they, someone went to that hospital, traveled uh, and, and walked all that way, got to the health clinic, which isn't really a hospital, but got there, was denied treatment, died. And then they were asking for a bribe to release their body um, for a burial, right? And so it, it's wild, but things are shifting. We have the local, the state and the national government supporting this initiative. Um, we have the local tribal leaders all supporting this, the local religious leaders all supporting this, the local universities all supporting this. Um, and so there's, there's a bright future for them. And where they shifted, there's three immediate uh, nearby, uh, like walking distance villages um, and a, a fourth that we tried. We, so we've already drilled wells in those three areas. So, so the community is benefiting as a whole, not just the pygmy people, but their neighbors we don't want resentment building up we don't want them thinking oh this is just a project for them the marketplace will be for everybody we we have i'm going back in october with the founder of engineers without borders and we're, we're getting needs assessments from all these villages to say how can we help build everyone up the water reservoir is being created to serve the one village that is really rock climbing in the mountains to get clean water or it's not even clean it's a spring but but it's going all through the ground like on the surface surface water from a spring so it gets contaminated. So that water reservoir will support over 5,000 people um, and it will support the hospital and the school. We just have to raise the funds to build the structures. Um, and then it unlocks that 1.5 million. And we have a $100,000 matching gift right now for the reservoir and we've already raised 34,000 of that. It's, it's pretty awesome because for what, the price of a, Austin, a home in Austin, uh, we can build a hospital school, a community center, um, and we're going to be able to serve immediately 5,000, but we believe it will serve over 20,000 as people continue to move to that area because it's an area that already people were moving to, uh, but without clean water and, and without uh, health care and without a school, over 500 kids that can't go to school. So it's being welcomed by everyone, and we're really grateful for that. Um, but there are challenges, like you say, like uh, we want to do everything where it's culturally sound or sustainable even in the school that, that we're highlighting every culture, singing every, every song in, in their native language um, or their, their local language, uh, local dialect. I'm sure there's gonna be challenges. And, and that's why we try to keep as open communication with local leaders as much as possible. It has to be theirs, they have to own it. We, we try to say this isn't charity, it's opportunity um, because charity can be great, but opportunity is always better. 
I think charity should be reserved for times of famine or natural disaster or war, or uh, maybe sometimes people with disabilities where they can't help themselves, but oftentimes people with disabilities are like, help me help myself. And so the same thing with poverty, um, they're saying, and, and with oppression, they're like, hey, let's overcome oppression with like overwhelming opportunity basically. And it's like, okay, that, that's, that's what we can do. What do you need? How can we just supply the resources? How can we give you the training, the education? So equipping them with the tools, educating with the knowledge and empowering them to be the change in their own community. That's as good as it gets. In, for people who are interested in helping out, do you have uh, links or anything that we can mention for people who want to donate or check out the project? Yeah, so we just launched a, kind of a crowdfunding campaign on our website. It's fightfortheforgotten.org. Mm -hmm. And this is all going to the project. And so it's um, fightfortheforgotten.org. And I believe the initiative uh, just launched, it's called Carry the Water. Carry the Water. And it's just on our homepage. And that's specifically for the reservoir. But we're, we're changing our model to where we really want to invite as many people to give um, and basically our tribe of supporters, what we're calling it our fight club. And mm -hmm. so people can join for like $5 a month or $20 a month or whatever they, they would like to do. You just can't talk about it. <laughs> he said, you just can't talk about it. Like fight club, <laughs> you know, you can. Well, our, our, our first rule of fight club is that you do speak about fight club. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this fight club. Go ahead. And the second rule too, go ahead keep talking yes. about it and sharing about it because I would much rather I mean, I learned a, a decently hard lesson in philanthropy or nonprofit work this year. You can never be dependent on one donor or two donors, right? And, and we worked harder than I ever thought uh, for a donation and, and it was secured. Uh, a board unanimously voted for it, yes. And we thought it was gonna be all of the build out of the structures. And then for reasons internally there and, and the state of the world and um, inflation and other, just just fear. Um, there was a, a, a pullback and a pullout of it. And so it was like, whoa, you know, like that's that's a hard lesson to learn. We were, we were, we were working for it for six to eight months. They wanted to support it um, and then just couldn't. And so yeah. if I would have instead been been doing both, like working for that and building out the fight club, but now I see it as an opportunity to be like, man, this just means more people get the support. Mm -hmm. If we can build an army of a thousand people or 10,000 people, uh, that say, hey, I'm giving this so that we can make a complete change. My, my, my partners at Project Cure, the founder and the CEO, they helped me start Fight for the Forgotten. I waited 10 years to ask them for support for the hospital. Um, and the founder of Engineers Without Borders, he's a mentor of mine. They believe that when we do this project correctly, that nothing's been done like this uh, that they know of and they've been in this much longer than me since the 70s the 80s and they think that they've got ted talks they teach at universities they're like this this will be a model this will be a model that hopefully will be taught in in american or worldwide in universities of like this is the holistic approach of partnering together not being like protective or mm -hmm. or uh of of your charity but saying we're going to work with this charity and this charity but we're working with all the local leaders we're bringing the experts for this and that a well-rounded approach, just like an MMA fight. You need all the right coaches for striking, jujitsu, wrestling, uh, cardio, everything. And so we're bringing in all the experts to, to help lead the project. And I, I think it's going to be something really, really special. Sweet. Man, I love it. Like, 
everything about it everything about your personal story your journey your motivations what you are doing like the whole thing is just so fucking cool it's beautiful thank you and i love it because it doesn't happen too often that you run into people that you feel like wow this is just a beautiful thing that somebody's doing it's a, such a beautiful like you know there's never that uh, clear cut most of the time it's like oh that's cool oh but there's this issue oh there's this is just i love it all the way you know everything uh, everything about it another time i love to pick your brain more because i think it can help people about your journey in terms of the depression the, that part of your story but um but man everything you have shared today it's, it's amazing it confirms uh, you know that initial feeling i had when i remember seeing some interviews of yours of going like hey i want to talk to this guy it's, i know exactly why you know because it's uh no man i really love what you're doing you're a wonderful human being thank you so much for your time for what you do for everything thank you that, that i just thought about it in the man the man that you are and i'm so grateful for you i'm so grateful for your supporters but um you being the man that you are i was like uh, oh i i have a, a swahili proverb that just popped in mind actually two of them and yeah you're right like next time i could come on and talk about how i'm a two-time suicide survivor and and two time two two different stints at treatment for for addiction and substance use disorder but there's two things i'd love to end on and and thank you for for honoring me but man, my heroes of this are the people that are doing the work mm -hmm. and the people that have gone from child soldier to changing hundreds of villages with clean water yep. and just brilliant human beings. And they taught me one of the greatest lessons in my life, which is if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And that's Swahili <laughs> proverb. They did it right in front of me. They, 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 they celebrate together. They mourn together. A funeral there is unlike anything I've ever experienced because mm -hmm no one's alone in it um and, and they cry together and it's a it's a display like they don't hold it back and they share everything even like i was sitting on a log one day beating on a well and a guy came up and sat next to me a kid he was maybe six seven eight years old he worked in the field all day and he maybe had 12 13 peanuts that he got paid for his whole day's labor he sat down beside me knew i was i was uh tired and he just grabbed my hand opened it and he gave me half of them you know, poured like six, seven in my hand. I'm like trying to put them back in his hand. He's like, no, 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 no. Like what, what's mine is yours type thing. And I was just like, wow. So if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I think that's the invitation for the fight club. And then for anyone listening to this, that thinks, because I've had people say before, well, I could never do that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, man, I started small. I just started at a local children's hospital volunteering on the oncology. But when I got malaria, there was a, someone told me a Swahili proverb that's, uh, if you think you're too small to make a difference, try to sleep in a closed room with a mosquito. <laughs> and, and I just thought of that. And, yeah. you know, we had, we had some birds chirping and dogs barking and yeah. it, it kind of got in on this podcast. But I just think of that with a mosquito. If we were in a room together right now, one mosquito would be disturbing all three of us. Oh, yeah. And malaria is impacting millions of people. And it's like, man, a, a mosquito kicked my ass more than any six foot 10 MMA fighter ever has, right? <laughs> and, and so if that mosquito less than one gram can make that much more of a difference in my life, almost taking my life in malaria, more than a 275 pound heavyweight, it's like right. any person listening to this should know you can make an incredible difference in the world. Like a kid can, anybody can. 
So, uh, so don't limit yourself with limiting beliefs. Like know that you can, you can leave an impact in an imprint on this world for the better. Well, and the whole notion, I mean, you have such a great answer for our society right now to, to all we do is go fast and alone. We've lost our togetherness a long time ago for no good reason. But that's almost inspiring that there, there is an answer in there in a big way yeah. that, you know, just even cultures around here, I see different cultures that do hang out together. They do have big parties together. They have a great time. But this whole nuclear family thing that we got a hold of where we all sit the four of us alone and, and don't embrace our relatives anymore, and that's a massive problem that mm. you really have pointed a good arrow to because that's how we fix this problem. We yeah. celebrate together. We have a good time together. We, um, Oddly enough, we had rain on Friday, and I think we had had six hours of rain sometime like April but other than that, there hadn't been rain since February. And I just had to be at the Hollywood Bowl watching a concert, and nobody left. Yeah. 18,000 people dancing in the rain together, yeah, singing man. along. That unity, we're perfectly capable of it. But for whatever reason, fast and alone seems to be what we're doing these days. Yeah. And I just love that notion. And you do have your finger on the pulse, man. Water is going to be the problem. The fight of oil—they're going to—they're going to hash that out over the next twenty years. But that's done. We're not going to need it anymore. And the water is going to be sorely missing. I'm betting Texas isn't exactly the most drenched place in the world right now either. Yeah. Well, it's it's neat. Everyone in Africa, when it rains, and I'm talking about raindrops that you can't even see someone three, four foot in front of you can't make out who it is because it rains so hard, so fast. They just know instantly and say, rain's a blessing, rain's a blessing, rain's a blessing. Last time it rained here, it was like, oh, I'm so glad it's raining. You hardly hear that here. The thing you said though, one last thing you said, the concert and the unity. One of the most powerful or profound things I had happen at, at treatment before addiction, there was this kid that was one of the worst off, IV meth and IV heroin user. But he had a moment in recovery, they say you need, you need a power greater than yourself, like a higher power of some sort, you know, whatever that is but it needs to be something greater than you and your power. Cause that, that hasn't kept you sober or you can't get sober. Cause that's on your own power. This kid was just struggling with uh, thinking there's anything higher. Um, but then he loved music and he had a time of meditation and he started thinking about some of his, his favorite times at concerts where he was playing. He was actually a very talented musician and how he would go to his favorite musicians and listen to that. And he goes, you know what? Like there can be four or five people that are, that are playing three or four, you know, playing these, this instrument, this music at a concert and everyone comes together and people aren't on their phones and people are soaking it up and people are just present, just being in that present moment together and you're unified and there's something greater than, than those guys on that stage or me on that stage or, or the person there, something greater, there's a higher power there that brings us all together. And for a moment, time stops, and life's good and, and 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 like that's my higher power whatever that is and i was like i was like wow that's that's beautiful like talking about everything that's going on to harmoniously make make life better yep. and um i was like whoa i'm gonna take take that and just think about it meditate on it i haven't thought of it again until you you said that about the concert but it was the real thing the man it was it was funny we were thinking oh man nobody's gonna show up for this it, it was duran duran of all things yeah. But then now Rogers shows up and does chic songs from the 70s. So it's disco intro to 80s and not a person left in a downpour. Wow. And 
And it made the lights look cooler, too. But it's exactly what you're saying. Yes, the band is important, and they are, are bringing it together. Yeah. But those other 18,000 people woven in with it, we are all in that same pocket at that point. And it is it's amazing beyond belief. It just, yeah. I don't know. I worry sometimes about where we're headed, but when I can see that this is possible, yeah, there's hope. Yeah, I think just being that conduit, just like those musicians, like this is my way to be a conduit of whatever that source of, of love and light is. And, and my thought, especially with the state of the world and, and after COVID and fear and war and, and inflation, all this different stuff, it's like a lot of people are scared. And I think that's why we, we potentially lost that, uh, that, that donation. But it's like, man, there's so much to live for. Every dark nook and cranny on planet Earth needs a lot of light and a lot of love. And it can't be done by one or two or a thousand people. It's got to be it's got to be one by one changing someone's life. And then the lights turn on for them and then they go on and change, turn the lights on for someone else. And then yep. it's that ripple effect. So, man, I'm so grateful to, to have this conversation with you all today. Been a blast, Justin. Thank Very you nice so to meet much. you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Absolutely. Funky music means one thing. That's the end of another fine episode of the Drunken Dallas podcast. This is sort of reminding me of Tate's story, who has probably been murdered by every major motion picture star in an action movie right. over the past, that's probably seven, eight years ago that he was on. Yep. It's funny. We, we seem to have uh, some of our best episodes of being with tough, sweet human beings. Yeah. Uh, Mike V. Yep. And another story on dealing with heavy things, but coming out as a really sweet human being. Yeah. So, but yeah, Justin is just such a cool person. I I wanna I wanna do this again with him. I wanna chat more with him about. There's so much to say. There's just. But I hope you guys had uh, half as much fun listening as we did sitting here chatting with him because we had a blast. So if even half is what you got, it's a good day. Have a good day, everybody. What do I have to do? One day the rod shall teach you. D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. Good shit. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Dallas Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as they come out. You can keep track of Danielli at D-Bolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one. We'll see you all soon. Woo!
All right, let's go to rehearsal. We'll roll on this one. Oh.